0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I have a podcast recommendation for you. The podcast is called How Do We Fix It? And on How Do We Fix It? The hosts, Richard and Jim, take on big topics, problems, issues, and they talk to people about how we fix them. I like this podcast very much. You can find How Do We Fix It? on all the major podcast apps. If you want to visit them on the web, you can go to howdowefixit.me. Just as a taster, here's an episode of How Do We Fix It?
1: What's the greatest crisis facing America today? I mean, we have so many things to choose from. Exploding government, debt, racism, climate change, a crisis at the border.
0: I would argue it's none of those. It's conflict. How we talk past each other, demonize the other side, us versus them. This conflict is a threat to our democracy and stops us from solving all
2: those other problems.
1: Amanda Ripley, High Conflict.
2: Most Americans want out of this high conflict. They very much want to see a different way of disagreeing among their politicians, in the news media, and they are frequently tuning out of politics and the news. Our
0: show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do
1: we fix it?
0: Have you been driven nuts by someone who says something crazy about politics or is seized by a conspiracy theory? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. You know I spent years fighting against those 9-11 conspiracy theories. And I saw how people would work themselves up into a frenzy where they're the good people who know what's right and the people they're arguing against are completely bad, completely evil and need to be somehow just banished from the conversation. But there
0: is something called good conflict, which involves complexity and can teach us to be better people. We take a look at that and also high conflict, why it's threatening to tear us apart.
1: Our guest is Amanda Ripley. Like us, she's a solutions journalist who's committed to reporting on constructive ideas as well as describing deeply serious problems. Her latest book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out.
0: Amanda Ripley joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It?
2: Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
0: Every society has conflict. So what's the difference between good conflict and bad conflict or high conflict?
2: High conflict can start small, but it gradually takes on a life of its own. So it really can be about almost anything. But what happens is over time, it usually becomes an us versus them kind of feud. And our brains behave differently, and we start making mistakes about ourselves, the other side, and the possibilities. And slowly but surely, maybe the most chilling thing I've seen in every high conflict I've looked at all over the world is that eventually the people involved start to mimic the behavior of their adversaries.
1: You've said that when a country is experiencing high conflict, it begins to hallucinate. Is that what's going on in the U.S. right now?
2: I think a lot of people are trapped in this political high conflict and they are not seeing the other side clearly. There are threats, but some percentage of them are mythological and some percentage of them are factual. And figuring out what that percentage is is very hard in high conflict. But I also want to point out most Americans want out of this high conflict. They very much want to see a different way of disagreeing among their politicians, in the news media, and they are frequently tuning out of politics and the news, which is a big problem, but totally understandable. And this is what often happens in high conflict, is that the most flexible, open-minded, reasonable people flee the scene and the extremists take over.
0: When there's high conflict... Is the conflict itself, the me against you, us versus them, more important than the argument about whatever divides us?
2: Right. That is one of the diabolical things, is the conflict becomes its own reality. One of the distinctions between high conflict and good conflict is this exact point. High conflict isn't going anywhere, it's, it is the destination, whereas good conflict can be heated and stressful and unpleasant and uncomfortable, but it's going somewhere. There are things you don't yet know. There's still some curiosity that flashes through every so often.
0: And how does that relate to our political moment? Because clearly we're really divided and we got a lot of uh, us versus them anger out there.
2: I would say that the United States is in high conflict you don't really need to read a lot of stories, right? You just read the headline and you know what it's going to say. Like, it's not its not usually surprising.
1: As a reporter, you've worked all over the world writing for Time, the Atlantic Monthly, and, and, and other outlets. Was there a particular experience that sort of triggered the idea that this topic could make a book?
2: You know, after the 2016 election, I found myself sort of at a loss trying to understand how to be useful, you know, in this climate. when It was so polarized. It didn't seem to matter what facts you uncovered. Uh, I mean, it mattered, but not the way it once did. Most of the places I wrote for were not trusted by half the country. Um, so I sort of went off in search of some, some understanding that I had missed. And it turned out that the study of conflict, the people who are immersed in conflict, who understand it intimately, for me, was a total eye-opener. Like, I could now make sense. I mean, there were lots of forces at work, right? But that overlay, that map, was very helpful to understand how conflict itself operates and can become like a... it It can start to run on autopilot.
0: What was the result of this insight?
2: I worked on a piece called Complicating the Narratives, which was commissioned by the Solutions Journalism Network to learn, you know, what could journalists learn from people who work in conflict that we aren't already doing? You know, how could we be more useful instead of just, you know, inflaming the conflict? Who has gone from high conflict to good conflict? And I mostly wanted that just for my own sanity, right, for hope. Um, But I thought it might be useful for other people, too. So I found examples, you know, a politician in California who uh, had gotten trapped in high conflict and then moved to good conflict, a former gang leader in Chicago who had spent years in a vendetta with a rival gang and moved into good conflict, and an environmental activists in England, all kinds of people and communities who had made that shift and, and then could help us understand how the rest of us could do that too.
1: You say that high conflict can be on a grand national or international scale, but it can also work on a very intimate scale. One word that comes up in your book as an example of that is the word crockpot. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Crockpot comes from a story of a divorce mediator. Every divorce lawyer and mediator has a story like this. It's good fun. If you have them over for dinner, ask them for theirs where a couple is just going to war over some possession, uh, and the divorce proceedings are at a standstill. And that's usually because they're not talking about the thing underneath the conflict, the thing it's really about in addition to the possession. So in the case of a crockpot, for example, the wife wants the crockpot, the husband wants the crockpot. Finally, it can come out if you ask the right questions and listen carefully, that the wife wants the crockpot because as a growing up there was a crock pot in their family's kitchen and every Sunday her parents would cook a pot roast in it and for her smelling that smell and knowing it was there bubbling away was sort of a sign of a good home and they had never actually used the crockpot in their in their marriage but she wanted to hold on to it because it was a vision for something that she still cared deeply about and then the husband why did he want the crockpot he didn't cook either but he wanted it because she wanted it so badly, so inexplicably, and she had wanted the whole divorce. So naturally he was trying to hold on to the thing he could hold on to.
0: One of the people you spoke with for your book is actually someone who I interviewed recently, Peter Coleman at Columbia University. And he's been very experienced in studying conflict, both here and overseas.
2: Right. So I interviewed Peter Coleman for that first piece I was telling you about complicating the narrative. And he was very thoughtful. He'd written a book about... um, the 5% of conflicts, roughly, that are just really intractable and uh, really interesting. And at some point he said, yeah, and and we run this lab at Columbia here called the Difficult Conversations Lab. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) stop. Can I go there? And uh, he very graciously (laughs) allowed me to come. And this is basically a place where he and his colleagues set up awkward, difficult conflicts between strangers who disagree on some controversial issue, whether it's Israel or gun control or abortion. Uh, And so he allowed me to to try it out. And I I was matched with a grad student who disagreed with me about um, the idea of safe spaces and trigger words on campuses. Uh, And so we, we have this 20 minute conversation. And the idea is it gets recorded. And the idea is you have to see if you could come up with a statement that you would be okay with making public. Um, that you could both agree on, because they've now done this like 500 times all over the world and analyzed the results. And what they find is you can roughly sort a lot of these conversations into two buckets. One are the kind that go pretty badly, right? Some of those have to be stopped before the 20 minutes are up. There's just anger, frustration, anger, frustration over and over. Nobody's, you know, it's just really painful. And then other conversations though, more interestingly, experience anger and frustration, but other emotions too. So there's like a galaxy of emotions. There's more movement, right? So they might experience flashes of humor, curiosity, understanding, surprise, uh, confusion, and then back to anger, frustration. And in those conversations, people tended to ask more questions of each other, and they tended to leave the lab more satisfied. So for me, that was a big aha moment, that that's good conflict. And that's something that as journalists... In a moment like this, we should be trying to provoke.
1: It's not just we should all resolve to do better. We should be nicer to people we disagree with. You actually have specific techniques, some of which come out of that, that work at, at Columbia. What are some things that, that real tools people can use to de escalate these high conflict situations?
2: how can we help people figure out what those are or get curious about what those are? Because otherwise, we're just going to keep talking about the same talking points about immigration or policing or crime, and we're never going to go anywhere interesting or useful. So one of the things that Peter Coleman and his colleagues found at the Columbia lab was that they could actually induce good conflict in that lab by having people read a, a news story, short news story before they went in, that was about some other controversial topic but it acknowledged complexity. You know, it said there are many different opinions about uh, gun control, for example, not just two. Here's what some people think. Here's what other people think. Here's the problem with that. What if you, if you did this uh, gun control thing, that would solve some problems, but not others. Right. And what they found is if you read that story, you're much more likely to go in and have a good conversation
1: Another story that you write about is an environmental activist named Mark Linus, who originally was a very extreme left wing uh, uh, kind of climate extremist who was also very opposed to genetically modified foods and other things. And today is more of a pragmatic environmentalist who really argues for a more, <laughs> to acknowledge complexity and, and understand more the nuance of that solving these problems requires. Tell us a little bit about his story.
2: Yeah, Mark is a great example of someone who was pulled into conflict for all the right reasons. You know, early on when genetically modified uh, food was a new concept, not well understood, not yet well researched. He had legitimate worries about uh, whether we should trust big food companies to, you know, influence the food supply in this way. And he did not trust the the food companies. He did not trust the government to do that. He's from England. He helped start the movement against genetically modified food um, in England that spread elsewhere. And, you know, again, very good reasons for his skepticism. And over time, though, as more science and research came out about the fact that actually, Carefully managed genetically modified food could dramatically lower the use of pesticide by about a third because you could now create crops that were on, you know, by themselves resistant to pests so that you didn't need to use the chemicals um, and that could really help with famine and, and food shortages in poorer countries, right? So there were real values to these crops that he sort of missed, because in high conflict, we lose our peripheral vision, so to speak. And you miss really important things, because you get so focused on winning and on the fight.
1: I mean, he he was actually going out and chopping down genetically modified corn in the dead of night, right?
2: Right. He was like, you know, and he was not someone who really thought of himself as you know, being <laughs> sort of quite that extreme. But next thing he knew, he was in the middle of the night with a machete chopping down genetically modified corn with other people and, you know, getting chased by police dogs and uh, throwing, you know, pies in people's faces. So his story is one of is sort of a classic example of what's known as contact theory. It's the most studied intervention to reduce prejudice between groups who don't understand each other is contact. And when people develop relationships across big divides, it does necessarily complicate right our understanding of the conflict and allows us to gain back some of that peripheral vision. So in in Mark's case, he'd been writing books and magazine articles about science and climate change in addition to his activism work and he got to know many scientists who were also working on climate change and he started to really respect them and see them as whole people and he started to really respect the scientific method and he started to, to really make that part of his own identity and so eventually it it just became untenable to keep denying this evidence for him because of these human relationships. And to his credit, you know, he remains quite passionate and quite far left on many, many issues. If you follow him on Twitter, you know, he's no he's not shy about his opinion. So it's not that he, you know, became a moderate. I want to be clear about this, uh, because a lot of people think I'm arguing for, you know, civility and moderation and unity. And that's that's really not the case.
0: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we'll dig deeper into solutions to high conflict in just a minute. But first, Jim, you're really good at this. Give us the pitch (laughs) for for why people should recommend, follow us, give us five stars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, you share our belief that we need to have better, more productive, healthier conversations in this country. And that doesn't mean just, oh, everyone should just agree in the middle and compromise on everything. But it does mean... We need to acknowledge nuance, complexity, the difficulty of these things, and listen to the other side. We're really devoted to that, but we, we do need help. We need people to spread the word about our podcast. It's, it helps us so much if you go on your favorite platform and leave us that five-star review. A comment is always great. Share our work on social media. Even just talk us up with your friends and uh, help us move this conversation forward.
0: Thanks. Now back to our conversation with Amanda Ripley. Amanda, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but does social media make everything worse with high conflict?
2: As it's currently designed, yes. It does not need to do that, though, right? I mean, I'm always amazed how, let's say your, your, your dishwasher breaks. You can go online and find... 47 really helpful posts from strangers trying to help you and you can go back and forth with them and they will be curious and thoughtful and forgiving and all the things that we want people to be. Um, And those sites are usually designed with those norms in place. So there is a way to design (laughs) infrastructure and human institutions to incite good conflict. It's what we've done through most of human history We have right now too many social media platforms and news media platforms, frankly, that are attention economy models, which go with the laziest option possible, which is to try to seize your attention often through indignation, fear, anger, and really incite high conflict.
0: You keep talking about good conflict. Why is good conflict good?
2: That's a great way to ask the question. I used to think that conflict was just generally bad, right? But what I've learned is that it can be really good and better than no conflict at all, which is sort of hard to accept at first (laughs) for most of us try to avoid conflict, right? That's very human. And so um, good conflict can push us to be better, right? As individuals, as groups, as societies, that's how we stand up for ourselves, that's how we get challenged by people in our family, in our neighborhood, in our city. That is the only way we can really evolve.
1: You've written a lot about this pandemic we've all been living through since the early days. And in one of your pieces, you noted that at first there was a lot of, of unity among the public about you know, doing the things that were necessary. Politicians agreed about the need for COVID relief. But partly because of bad messaging from political leaders, but also a lot of bad reporting from the media, somehow we we went downhill into a place where many people's opinions about the pandemic are rooted in deep conflict and deep antipathy towards what they see as the other side. What did we do wrong?
2: Well, I think uh, I think there's t- at least two things going on. One is this was a very long, is a very long disaster. Long disasters are very hard because there is this golden moment, this golden hour right after a disaster begins when people are naturally called to solidarity, to help each other. They can be very generous. And we saw that all over the world, even in Congress. That first package, uh, that stimulus package passed 96 to zero in the Senate. Um, and 8 out of 10 Americans said that they felt like we were all in this together back in March of 2020. So there was that moment, and it is hard to sustain anywhere in the world, right? It is hard to sustain when, there's, when it's chronic, when the stress is chronic. There's not a chance to really fully recover. It is very hard on humans. And actually, I think, too much to ask. The second thing, which is to your question is that we did not manage it, many of us, as well as we could have, particularly at the federal level. But the pre-existing problem was profound distrust in our news media, in our government, right? Without trust is very hard to manage it well, even if you're doing everything right, which we weren't, right? As soon as things get politicized, which they did, it's very difficult to come back from that. It's like there was just a study that looked at vaccine acceptance among Republicans. And uh, when Republicans were shown a message from Biden encouraging people to take uh, the vaccine, they were much less likely to want to take it. In high conflict, the more you try to fix a problem, the worse it usually gets, right? So Biden is trying to get people to take the vaccine so we can get out of this. And it's making people, certain people, not want to take the vaccine. So that's the diabolical thing about high conflict.
1: I think you wrote at one point better to have balanced authoritative experts who are also willing to admit what they don't know.
2: Right. That's right because in high conflict, in this level of political polarization, there's just they're not trusted by too many people, you know. So and the same with the news media. Like until we have a news outlet that is trusted across the aisle, we're going to keep living in alternate realities. I
0: lived in Britain for many years, reported on IRA bombings in London, actually heard a few of them go off, and also visited Northern Ireland for a long time. The, the crisis in Northern Ireland seemed like it would never be worked out, and yet eventually there was progress. You also have looked into the civil war in Colombia, which was a far worse conflict than Northern Ireland. And there are cases where people went from hatred to cooperation. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, you know, I went to Colombia for the book because they've got, you know, half a century of experience trying to find peace, trying to reintegrate people who have left the violent civil war there And they've learned some things, right? Haven't figured it all out, made a lot of mistakes, but learned some things. And one of the things that they've learned is that people carry around a lot of different identities, right? And that's true in conflict. We all do. And part of the challenge is to find the right moments and the right way to revive other identities outside of the high conflict. Often, not always, The way that seems to work best is to call on people's identities as parents or children. This is a deep identity that is important to most of us on some level. And often high conflict runs counter to that identity. So when you are a FARC guerrilla fighter in the jungle and your child has no parent there to take care of her, as was the case for Sandra Bustos, who I write about in the book, that pull on her was very magnetic as well, just like the conflict. And that was also true for, for Curtis Toller. It's true for men, too. You know? I mean, Curtis Toller is a former gang leader in Chicago, and one of the reasons he, he found a way out of high conflict was because of his son. You know, realizing, watching his son at his eighth grade graduation and realizing that he, you know, he himself, Curtis, was either going to be in prison or dead, Uh, by the time his son graduated from high school. And that pull towards this other part of our identity is very powerful. And it's not enough, right? But it's something that we can work with potentially.
1: How did Curtis Toler overcome that life in Chicago gangs and become really a force for good in that city?
2: It's an incredible story. One of the things he did, which I mentioned, because I think it's something we could all think about doing, um, which is he distanced himself from the conflict entrepreneurs in his life. So conflict entrepreneurs are the people or platforms or pundits who exploit conflict, or at least delight in conflict for their own ends. So Sometimes it is profit, right? That's the most obvious kind. But frequently I find it's for meaning or power or sense of camaraderie, attention, right? We know a lot of politicians do this. A lot of news media uh, personalities do this, right? So it's these are people who really seem to delight in every twist and turn of the conflict and really made a career out of it. There are also people in our personal life who do this, and I'm sure I've done it. It is really easy to play that role, um, and it can happen in every divorce. Again, every divorce mediator has a story about the people on the sidelines, you know, the the mother-in-law or the sister or the people who are kind of adding jet fuel to the fire <laughs> of the conflict. And it's very important to recognize who they are, and distance yourself from them if you can, or at least try to. Be conscious of what's in it for them, because they're typically the only ones benefiting in high conflict. So in Curtis's case, he moved across town in Chicago, so literally it was harder to find him and he wasn't as in touch with every twist and turn because he he wasn't talking to all these conflict entrepreneurs on a regular basis and that distance was very, very helpful.
0: In our own conversations and conflicts, listening is part of it. How do we listen better?
2: You know, this is one where I thought I knew how to listen, you know, as a journalist for 20 years, I thought I was a pretty good interviewer, you know, and, uh, and it was very humbling to go for conflict mediation training and realize how bad I was at listening. I used to think that nodding and smiling at the right moments and saying, I hear you, we're listening. That's not listening. That's acting like you're listening, right? (laughs) Right. And people can sense the difference. It's sort of amazing. So what I now try to do all the time in every interview, in every conversation with my family, if there's any emotion in it at all, I don't always succeed, but I try, which is looping, which is basically you listen for what is the most important thing that person is saying, important to them, not to you. (laughs) Uh, And then you try to play it back for them, not word for word necessarily, but Try to summarize it in the most elegant language you can muster. You have to check for understanding. Like, did I get it right? With genuine curiosity. This is something that takes a lot of practice, but it's very cool. And it really dramatically changes the interaction, even when you get it wrong. When people feel heard, they start to say more nuanced, interesting, and complicated things. So they lower their guard and they become more open to information they maybe don't really want to hear. So listening is really the key to the kingdom, and I wish there were even a different word for it because I feel like it sounds really kind of squishy and woo woo, you know. But it's it's really not. It's like one of the most intellectually and emotionally um, challenging and intriguing exercises I've ever done.
1: Thank you, Amanda Ripley.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: My recommendation this week, Richard, is the documentary Long Strange Trip about the history of the Grateful Dead. It's on Amazon Prime. A lot of people have seen it. It's, I think, about five or six episodes. And I've always kind of gone hot and cold on the dead. I, as a musician, I sometimes found the cult that surrounded the dead to be kind of a little bit annoying. I Sometimes I, I love the wonderful influence they had on helping revive all kinds of roots music from blues to to bluegrass to country. But, um, But I was never a deadhead. I was never fully in the cult. And seeing this documentary about their early days, how they worked together, ways in which the band was really functional and then sometimes really dysfunctional, it's just fascinating. But the story of Jerry Garcia, who was really regarded almost like a god by, by his fans, including many of my friends back at the time. It is a sad story because he was so inspiring to so many, and his music was so—it was just transporting. What he accomplished uh, on the guitar and, and other instruments was just just remarkable. And and their legacy really lives on in influencing more than a generation, multiple generations, to explore the incredible history of American music.
0: And up next, our conversation a little bit briefer than normal this time.
1: Amanda Ripley really summarized this book so beautifully. People who are involved in conflict way worse than most of us could ever imagine found ways to transcend it, to rise above it, and and to also really dig into the, the tools and techniques she talks about. But this is not just a matter of, oh, we all just need to get along better. And, and when you say, oh, you, it's important to listen... She means really listen, active listening in such a way that you could then repeat your adversary's points back to them and show them that you really understand them. That's so key in building that trust.
0: But there are obstacles along the way. One group is the conflict
1: entrepreneurs. Isn't that a great concept? I love that concept. Yes,
0: yes. People who make money, who get fame, who get social media following simply by stoking the fires of anger. And we see it every single night on cable television. Whether you're left or right, there are some pretty awful examples from some very famous people. Uh, Please, turn off cable TV and listen to us read Amanda's book. This is How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies.
1: And I'm Jim Meggs.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, Miranda Schaefer is our producer. This show is a production of Davies Content. Find out more about what we can do for your podcasts at DaviesContent.com. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
2: ACast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend.
0: Our podcast, The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal, is celebrating its first anniversary. And our listeners got us the best gift ever: a milestone, 20 million listens. Are you one of them? Join the pack and give the new abnormal a shot. 20 million listens, can't be wrong and make sure you're subscribed to the new abnormal on your favorite podcast player so you never miss even a moment of our blunt truths and dark humor
2: A cast recommends A-cast.